Well, this morning we continue on in our sermon series in the book of Psalms. And by way of reminder, there are many good ways to study Psalms. But what we've been doing is taking Psalms with different flavors, different genres, and learning different things from them. So we've looked at Psalms of discouragement, trust, fear, joy, awe. This morning we come to a Psalm that isn't like any we've looked at so far. So really all the Psalms we've looked at, um, we've considered things that kind of touch on our real lives in a way. Things we're familiar with, like confession of sin, worship of God, struggle with pain. So for the most part, we've been able to see the Psalms' original context and then consider what it might mean for us. But Psalm 137 is a Psalm that when we come across it, maybe in our daily devotions, would leave us with a lot of questions. It's a Psalm that's set in a historic, specific historic context, but it's also a Psalm that deals with things we often don't like to talk about. Uh, We don't know who the author of this psalm is, but we clearly see its setting. So the setting is the 500s BC after Israel has been defeated and led into captivity by Babylon. The psalm may have been written during captivity or after it, but it opens with the Israelites in sorrow in a foreign land, defeated by their enemies and having been led into exile. And at the risk of understatement, this is a low point in Israel's history. God has warned them about the results of disobedience, but now the worst-case scenario has been played out, and they're actually forced from their homeland and taken to Babylon. And it wasn't like everything was as terrible as possible. We assumed they were able to eat well and survive. If you look at the prophet Jeremiah, he even encouraged them to look for the prosperity of Babylon while they were there. But what we must understand is that exile for Israel was not terrible merely because they had lost a war, or because their enemy was in charge, or because their people had been killed. What was ultimately significant about exile was their removal from the land of God. God had led Israel to the promised land. His temple had been set up in Jerusalem. He was present there. So the fact that they're now taken from that land, exiled to a foreign nation with foreign gods and a foreign king, shows that Israel's undergoing God's discipline for their disobedience. They're now separated from the city of their God. And so here, as we look at Psalm 137, we see the people of God in despair and utter sorrow, lamenting their exile and remembering their homeland. And then we see them turn in anger and ask God for justice. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you, if I don't set Jerusalem above my highest joy. This is the lament portion of the psalm, and it starts off with the Israelites weeping over their exile. They're sitting by the waters of Babylon, so you might remember the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, right? And the canal systems of Babylon. It's not surprising they're sitting down by water. And that word sit down might mean more like dwelling, This was their home now. This is where they lived. And yet their hearts are yearning for Zion. Verse 2, they're hanging up their lyres. Lyres were musical instruments they used in singing. Some of the psalms were sung to the lyres. God's people rejoiced in his steadfast love for them. Uh, Perhaps some of these songs rejoiced in victory and triumph. But now when they think about singing those songs, all they see is defeat and sorrow. And so they hang them up. There's no use for them anymore. They're far from home. Singing those songs would not only be difficult, it would be inappropriate. But what do the Babylonians say in verse 3? They egg them on, don't they? They demand for them to sing. They want them to be happy, to be mirthful. They're mocking the Israelites. 
Because wouldn't it be ironic for Israel to sing of the greatness of their God while singing utter defeat, while suffering utter defeat to their enemies? So they adamantly refuse in verse four. They ask the rhetorical question, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we rejoice as exiles removed from the city of our God? How can we sing these songs in the land of our enemies? They don't want to expose the high claims of Zion to ridicule. And to make their point even more emphatic, they sort of call down curses on themselves in verses five and six, because if they do the unthinkable, they forget Zion, well, then they'd rather not be able to sing or play anymore. Rather not be able to play the lyre than sing or forget the land of their, their God. And so they commit to remembering Zion. They're loyal to their country. This psalm has a very patriotic flair to it. These Israelites will not turn away from the land their God has given them. The psalm placed in one of the darkest moments of Israel's history. Now, here we get insight into the despair of God's people under his discipline, yearning to be back in his land with his temple. As Christians, we must resist, I think, the urge to immediately apply this to our context. I think above all, we see this at a period in the history of God's redemptive plan. It's a period where he's disciplining and chastening and punishing, but also remaining faithful to salvation. The Israelites were suffering for their sin, yes, but in the background is the mercy of God, a God of justice and love who promises to bring them back. Throughout the Old Testament prophets, we see this glimmer of hope that the promises of God, even in darkest times, that, that he will not always be angry. He will call them to himself. He will have mercy on them. So church, let's remember the character of God this morning. The God we've been singing to today is no different from the God who disciplined his people and yet would show them mercy, eventually sending his own son to bring them redemption. His love never fails those he calls his own. Also, I think we can be reminded here of our great need for God. We see the Israelites yearning for the Lord, for the city of their God. They vow never to forget their homeland. Never forget the worship of the Lord. And yet, Christians, we find ourselves often yearning for lesser things, don't we? Fat satisfaction and more pleasure, more stuff, a new relationship, the end of a trial, better health. And those things are good, but devoid of the God who gives them, they become traps, traps that suck us in and leave us feeling even more empty and hopeless than before. So let's let Psalm 137 remind us that our greatest heart yearnings will only ever be satisfied in God. He made us for himself. Our soul thirst will only be quenched in him. So if you find yourself spiritually malnourished this morning, run to him. He's ready to show you mercy and fill you up with contentment as you find in him all you need. So that's the lament. Next, we see in the next three verses, a plea for justice. If you cast your eyes on those verses. So the Israelites commit to remembering Zion. But now in verse 7, they call on God to remember Verse 7, they, they start with venom against their captors, and they begin with the Edomites. The Edomites had worked with the Babylonians in the defeat of Jerusalem. And we see there in verse 7 how they had urged Babylon to utterly destroy Jerusalem, down to its very foundations. So the Israelites ask the Lord to remember that, and to bring justice to Edom. And then there in verse 8, the Israelites speak of the daughter of Babylon, which is kind of personification for Babylon as a whole nation. And it says it's a, a nation doomed to be destroyed. You might remember what Dan read for us earlier from the prophet Jeremiah who prophesied during the exile that Babylon would be ultimately defeated. For the Lord is a God of recompense, Jeremiah had said. He will surely repay. And here in Psalm 137, the exiled people of God take great comfort that God's justice is coming. And it did indeed come. 
And so here we see a sort of curse, don't we? The Israelites in utter sadness and despair ask God to have vengeance on the nation that has led his people into captivity. They pronounce a blessing on whomever would utterly destroy Babylon. These verses have a sort of legal feel to them. The Lord is this ultimate judge and his people are the plaintiffs, providing evidence of the wrongdoing of the Babylonians, asking God that he would just carry out justice and repay them what they deserve. There in verse 9, we see a horrific way the Babylonians inflicted misery and death on Israel, even on their infants. And so they ask God to repay Babylon exactly like that, eye for eye. This is raw human emotion. Israel pleads with God to treat Babylon with severe judgment, just as they had been so severely treated. Their anger and sadness boils over into an imprecation. It's a long, big word, but it means a spoken curse, asking God to judge and curse their enemies, his enemies. The Bible is a very real book, isn't it? It doesn't gloss over the emotions of human hearts. It hits them head on. As C.S. Lewis has written, the ferocious parts of the Psalms serve as a reminder that there is in the world such a thing as wickedness and that it is hateful to God. So what are we to make of this church? It's, a, it's okay to admit that these sections of the Bible make us uncomfortable, right? We cringe a little bit when we read those verses. They sound like jihad, like holy war. They, they sound unchristian. What does vengeance and hatred have to do with the Bible? Why, why the violence and the vindictiveness? Well, as we think through this passage, we must first see that what the Israelites desired for here is God to carry out justice. They'd suffered horribly. They'd seen their families torn apart. And so the response is a good response. It looks at these things and says, this is not good. This is terrible. There needs to be justice here. I think when we think of their point of view, we can see, we can feel that anger, right? Think of the news from Syria this past week and the anger that that could stir in our hearts as we see innocent civilians killed. We recoil at that. We hate that. It's wrong. For the most part, we're pretty far removed from Psalm 137 sort of suffering, right? War hasn't broken apart our families. We haven't been forcibly evicted from our countries into a place we didn't want to go. We haven't witnessed terrible atrocities against our loved ones. And so when it comes to calling on God to judge, we can feel uncomfortable. But friends, let's recognize that when faced with the terrible realities of injustice, we all cry out for justice. Evildoers can't get away with this stuff. Deep inside us is this need for final justice, both in our world and in our personal lives. I know some of you, I don't know others, but I know that there are people here who have been betrayed or abused or threatened in the past. And to this day, your abusers have not been dealt with. And there's this yell that emerges from our hearts that justice be carried out, that God not turn a blind eye to what you have suffered. Church, the fundamental cry of Psalm 137 is that God carry out justice for he is a final judge. He's just in all his ways. He will hand down judgment ultimately on all who have taken advantage of the weak, on all who have preyed on the innocent. As we've sung, one day he will return and he'll repay exactly what everyone deserves. It doesn't make him cruel or less good. In fact, just the opposite. God's justice confirms his perfect character. He will not allow any good deed to go un, evil, evil deed to go unpunished. Still, I think the question remains, what does this psalm have to do with us? 
And as Christians, are we supposed to pray down curses on our enemies? But we must remember that whenever we go to a passage of Scripture, we must seek to understand it and interpret it faithfully. It can be dangerous to just select a random text of the Bible and apply it directly to us, right? We must understand its primary context. And so here in Psalm 137, first thing we see is that we aren't 6th century B.C. Jews, right? We are a church thousands of years later. And so we look at Psalm 137, not directly, but through the lens of the cross, As we've gone through every psalm we've been through, we've been reminded again and again that they point ahead to Christ. We must always read them through that lens. If we don't, they become distorted or fuzzy for those of you who do photography, right? In Christ, the psalms come into perfect focus. So while we see in Psalm 137 this general human need for justice, we also, as those who look through the cross, ultimately see that that justice is aimed at each and every one of us. Every one of us has sinned against God and contributed to the brokenness of this world. That's not meant to excuse the evil things that have been done to us. What I hope to help us do is just zoom in a little bit closer to our own hearts And see what's revealed there, that we all have rejected God. We've all hated his rule in our lives. We've decided to live for ourselves, and so we deserve his judgment against us for our rebellion. So human sin requires justice, yes. But if that's the case, then each of us is in the dock standing trial. This psalm is uncomfortable. But it becomes even more uncomfortable for us when we see the justice our sin deserves and the wounds it has inflicted on others. It's a serious psalm. And ultimately, it helps us look at ourselves seriously. We deserve this just judge that we've been singing about to come. We deserve to be those deeply wailing when he appears. That's not where the story ends for Christians, is it? We see the need for justice against each of us as we look through the lens of the cross, but what else do we see? We see the wounds that our sins, however slight that might appear to us, have inflicted on others. But ultimately, we see the wounds our sins have inflicted on one other, right? On Christ. The cross is the most violent act of judgment in history. Not simply because Jesus was physically killed. Hundreds of other men suffered just like he did on crosses. No, it was because as he hung there, Jesus absorbed all the wrath of God against all the sins of those who would ever trust in him for salvation. On the cross, Jesus took our blame, our guilt, everything. He bore it on himself. He died the death you and I should have died for our sin. And he rose again to show he had finished his work of saving us. Now he calls us to repent of our sin, to turn to him, to be cleansed of our sin since he took it in our place. God gave his son to be crushed for our sin so that we might become his sons and daughters. So, Friends, if you're here and you're not, you're not a Christian, trust in that Jesus this morning, in the Jesus we've been singing about. Repent of your sin and rejoice in his forgiveness so that you too with us 
even though we're all the same in our guilt, can sing hallelujah for the cross. And brothers and sisters, this is the gospel, right? Even in Psalm 137, we see the gospel. With no gospel, we can cry out for justice to be done, but we will have no hope of escaping it. Yet with Christ, in Christ, trusting in Christ, we can plead for God's justice, knowing we've been spared it in Christ. Psalm 137 shows us how incredibly needy we are of good news, doesn't it? I mean, look at those final three verses again. I I neglected to read them earlier, but look at them. It's a call for justice. And and the plea for justice in verses 7 through 9, the only answer we can find for that is the gospel. The gospel comes to answer that plea for justice and says, look at me. Look, Christ says, look at what I have done. So how do we read a psalm like this as Christians? How do we deal with the kind of discordant tone it strikes in our souls? Well, to be clear, we don't pray curses down on our enemies anymore. That's part of reading this through the lens of the cross. Instead, as those who have been shown such great mercy in Christ, we follow the law of Christ, which says, love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Even as Jesus loved his enemies and prayed for those who despitefully used him. Us. In Christ, as Christians now, our role is not to call down curses on our enemies while we do pray for justice, but to first and foremost plead with God that he might save our enemies through his son. Paul calls us ambassadors of what? Of, of, of war? No, of reconciliation. Pleading that God not curse our enemies, but curse his son in their place so that they might be saved. We call on those around us now urgently to believe in this Savior that, so that he might take their sins on himself. But is that it? No, finally, church, we call for reconciliation because we know the judge is coming. We know that vengeance does not reside with us. But even as the Israelites saw in Psalm 137, it is God who will execute judgment. So we reach out because we know time is ticking on God's call for repentance and faith. We reach out urgently as we look forward to the king's return. Because friends, he's coming back. It could be today. And he will come to save and to judge. Our God has been so merciful to us that when he comes, we will sing hallelujah. But others will coil, recoil in fear at his coming. So I think church, we should be reminded that God is a God of justice. We should be reminded of our God's wonderful character as the theme of our service pointed to, that he is just in all our ways. But what might be one thing that we as as brothers and sisters in Christ take away from Psalm 137? Should yearn for the Lord. Find our pleasures in him as our highest joy. And we should seek that for those around us.
We should seek to know that our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers who are seeking for higher joys in success, in business acumen, in academics, in their children's success, and all these things that we know will prove empty to them. We should love them enough to warn them of the king who's coming, but who first came to die for them. We are living between Christ's first coming and second coming. So let's be diligent, church. Let's be urgent to tell others of this great gospel. The news that a savior has come to bear their curse on himself and that he's coming again to make all things right. What great confidence we have in this king. Let's pray to him together. Lord, we confess that when we come to a text like this, one of the so-called imprecatory psalms, the psalms that call down curses on your enemies, that, that we see them ultimately pointing to your son who received the curse in the place of his enemies. Lord, even in the hymns that we've been singing this morning, we, our hearts have been, have been touched and wrung by the love of this Christ. Only in the cross can we see how heaven's peace and yet heaven's perfect justice kiss the world in love. Only in the cross can we see where your justice and your mercy meet and embrace so perfectly. Lord, you did not have to save us, but you chose to save us for your glory and for our great joy. And so we worship you and we praise you. And Lord, we plead with you that you would bring justice. Lord, as we see the atrocities in our world, that you would bring justice. As we see the hurts in our lives, that you would bring justice. And we leave that with you and trust you. And in the meantime, Lord, make us faithful ambassadors of reconciliation to those around us. We know him who was who had no sin, but was made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And now we have that message to proclaim to those around us so that they might be spared your judgment and so that we might rejoice together with them forever in your presence. And so, Lord, we confess our negligence in this role. We ask that this psalm would spur us on to rejoice in our own forgiveness and reconciliation and then would compel us to share that in our friendships with others. Lord, even as we go out this afternoon, give us a love and a care and a joy for those around us lost in sin. Help us to call them to you. We praise you. We find all our rest and our hope in you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.